Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Everybody, we have Ken Quiethawk to thank for that lovely introduction, and you can find him on NativeStorytellers.com. Check it out; it's an amazing site. Mark has an amazing guest for us tonight. She's probably one of the most eclectically oriented ladies that I have ever heard about, and I'm very excited about it. So I'm going to turn it over to Mark. Mark, the show is yours. Okay. Uh, you know, I just want. Check in with you too. Uh, how's everything north of here? Well, it's cold. <laughs> okay. it's, it's cold in winter. What can one say? <laughs> um, must be an East Coast thing. Uh, we'll find out how things are in the South as we progress through the show. But uh, have you been, you know, having a good week? It's Seems like you've been pretty busy with uh, shows. All yeah, week. There, um, yeah, we had Michelle Avanti on Monday. I had Craig Sim Webb on last night, and this coming Friday, Michelle is coming back again, and she and I are going to compare our predictions for for the year, which should be a frightening and fascinating show. <laughs> okay, well, ho- hopefully, it's not as scary as. Uh, Victor's predictions. Uh, no, it's just, it comes what, pretty uh, close, actually. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, we'll have to uh, hide and watch and see what happens. But, um, Definitely a smart idea to have a drink in your hand as we get going. <laughs> right. But, uh, yes, yeah, um, might as well start working towards bringing our guest on, you know, something, uh, and, you know, right before the, the the show, our guest posted that photo, so I'm not uh, responsible for uh, what happens during the show, uh, and the blog talk English robo-babe uh, is going to think I'm a problem child, but it, it will... But we'll deal with that uh, after the, the show ends. But anyhow, uh, our 
our guest is doing two shows within the uh, same day. Uh, maybe our listeners heard Susan Messino on Coast uh, uh, last night. Um, you know, she got some practice with George Norrie, and now she's ready for the big time on Nightlight. <laughs> Absolutely. Hope, uh, yeah, well, and uh, you know, we're, we do kind of work together. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I hope everyone enjoyed celebrating Elvis's birthday yesterday, and we'll find out how Elvis fits into our guest story uh, as the night progresses. Uh, maybe we'll hear uh, a little bit about Guy Lombardo too. But uh, yeah, despite what other stations say, uh, nightlight ain't internet pollution. We're just nightlight. Uh, but yeah. we have a whole lot of Susan Messino to discuss her new book, Secrets of the Universe, and her 40 years of being an ACDC insider and friends with the band. And you know, we'll be covering a variety of other uh Books on AC, or her books on ACDC and Hank Williams and other rock stars. So, um, Susie, baby, get on in. How are you? <laughs> hey, Mark, I'm doing great. Hi, Barbara. Thank you for having me on tonight. Our pleasure. Yeah, yeah. We also want to uh, thank you for acknowledging Barbara and me in the. Acknowledgement section of the secrets of the universe. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you. Um, yeah, I, it's we're, we're, my pleasure, and uh, you know, I'm very grateful for for all the help in, uh, especially in the paranormal community, because there's so many very cool and interesting stories out there. Yeah, it's you know, it's just an honor, like being uh, right after George and Richard Sirrett and. There's our names. So we're getting credibility. Yeah, that, we've made the uh, big well, time. as you should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so after being on uh, 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 Coast to Coast last night, can you afford the gasoline? <laughs> I don't know yet. <laughs> I, I can't tell. I've tried to look, and, uh, you know, Amazon's funny because if you sell a couple books, it looks like you sold a lot more, so I'm not getting too excited yet, but I have, I'm have. i hopeful. So. Okay. <laughs> That's good. Well, ho- hopefully we can add to uh, the sales uh, starting in a, you know, a couple hours, and, people, you know, people start going – uh, to Amazon after uh, you know, the show ends, but you know, with uh, you know, you know what Barbara was saying last night about you know uh, Craig Sim uh, webbing uh, uh, her guest last night. Um, you know, he, he discussed uh, you know, near death experience uh, he had. He's uh, had a uh, Almost a, a drowning experience, and um, you know, it, it enhanced his perceptions. Uh, you know, Barbara, is that the right word? It's it's kind of like the after uh, after math of. You know, well, usually it's a sort of awakening. Happened. 
it's yeah. an awakening, I guess. Okay, uh, that, that might be a, 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 a better phrase than what I used. But, uh, you know, Susan, you had uh, a similar awakening, uh, but not as extreme, uh, you know, when you, know, you were younger. And maybe we can start there uh, and how that got you uh, into, you know, thinking about the secrets of the universe. Okay, well, um, my education in the paranormal started very early. When I was around five years old, I used to stay at my grandmother's house, and she would let me and my sisters sleep in a day bed in her bedroom, and we'd always say the Lord's Prayer, and then we would, you know, she would talk and tell us some stories, and we'd go to sleep. And one night she told us this story about her mother who had passed away you know several years before this and she told us that one night she came to her in her bedroom and told her that she was going to be okay and this was after her death and I can't tell you how many nights I laid awake watching that doorway (laughs) waiting for (laughs) you know to see somebody come in that door but um, it really got me questioning like how is that possible? You know, I was so little, I thought, is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Um, Can she come and go as she pleased? And that just started a lifelong, you know, um, discovery for me. Just I'm always curious, and I'm always reading more and more. There's always something to learn. Okay. And you also had, uh, you know, like uh, debilitating migraines, I did. Um, later on in life, I went through 14 years of uh, chronic migraines, which was, you know, I don't even know how I survived that. But um, I've just been very lucky to uh, make it through, you know, when I was a kid. Also, um, before that, when I was, uh, I lived up north in Wisconsin for a while between the ages of like four and five and eight years old. And uh, that's when I had out-of-body experiences. I didn't know what they were. You know, I would go to sleep at night, and as soon as I started falling asleep, the doors and the windows would become huge, you know, and the ceiling would all of a sudden be 50 feet high. And and, uh, I didn't know until years later that those were, I was literally astral planing (laughs) and didn't realize it. I didn't know what it was. What do you what do you think caused you to start ha- having those kinds of experiences? It, do you, you think it is you know do do you think it was like due to any anything in, in the environment or just you know, that that's just the way you know th- things like that happened? Uh, yeah, you. I was well, I was very curious after, you know, what my grandmother had told me. And mm-hmm. then um I've always been very um um I'm an empath, so I pick up people's mm-hmm. energy and things. So I was always very even as a kid, I I didn't know this for sure, but I I always felt like I didn't come from here. Like I was kind of here to observe things. So, which is kind of funny because I ended up being a writer and, you know, observing things and then writing about them. But um, that started for me, you know, my grandmother saying when she saw her mother after her death, I, that was it. I wanted to like, okay, I've got to find out how that works. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, 
does it still go on? Oh, God, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, where do you want to start, actually? I live in Savannah now, <laughs> and uh, I've been uh, I've done a lot of uh, fun you know, investigations, well, not all fun, but some of them were. Um, some sad, though, you know, going to Gettysburg, that was very heavy. Mm-hmm. And if anybody wants to see um, real paranormal activity, go spend a night or two in Gettysburg. Guaranteed. It's crazy. Do, 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 do you, you know, as... You know, and we go more through you know, your uh, book. Do, do, do you find like the you know, being empathic and you know, having th- these insights is you know, like a, a family trait, or you, know, you do have some interesting stories uh, about your son, but you know what? You know, do, do you have it, it, it's just interesting. I was just wondering, you know, where you think it comes from. Because I, I, uh, I just never had an experience like like that. I was just you know, wondering if you have an explanation how, how you know, what, what is it rooted in having these you know, kind of perceptions? Well, you know, I think um, my early curiosity, of course, made me more attuned to everything. And um, I think also that being psychic kind of runs in the family. You know, my my daughter and my son are very, um, I wouldn't call them, you know, readers, but they're psychic. My my mom and my sisters, we, you know, we've always been able to kind of say, oh, this is what's going to happen, and it would happen. So I kind of grew up with that belief of, like, there was a uh, knowing outside of the five senses. And then the more that I... Uh, read about it, and, uh, you know, and the the funny thing, too, is that um, people on the other side, if they figure out that you can hear them or or notice them at all, then they they definitely like to try to talk to you. (laughs) And that's an interesting thing. Sometimes it's scary and sometimes it's, it's fine. It just depends on where you are. So I, I had a lot of activity, especially when we lived in Wisconsin, in the house um, in Wisconsin. We had lots of activity in our house. Did you find you were on a vortex? Did you find you were on a vortex of some sort? Well, we kind of thought so in a way because um, we lived right off the Yehara River. Um, we lived my my girlfriend's. Um, Great psychics themselves, Tamara Gleason and Donette Cook, they used to tease me about my house was built on a burial ground because we mm-hmm. had a big slope in the backyard and we found an arrowhead in the backyard one day. So um, could be that, you know, uh, that, that whole area, you know, um, 200 years ago were all Native Americans along the river. So, um, yeah, the house might have been on a kind of a hot spot. And it, it definitely had a lot of activity. Um, it, at times, just crazy, crazy stuff. Especially when we, um, my son, had his past life memories of uh, being on the Titanic, which came about between four and six years old. And let's see, about quite a few years later, I want to say thirteen years later, we ended up on the show uh, Ghost Inside My Child that featured his story. 
and he, you know when he was a little kid of course we bought everything for for him the the books the toys the puzzles anything that had anything to do with the titanic he owned it <laughs> so the tv show when they came to film in 2013 they wanted us to collect all his drawings and all of his toys and everything and we put them on display but while we were doing that while we were slowly collecting it from boxes and wherever we'd stored things the activity in the house got really crazy and my son had a computer station set up in the lower level of the house it was pretty much his place to hang with his friends and there's always kids over and you know but there was a lot of activity and he had a um, set up his computer to record at night while we were upstairs asleep and we started hearing it was it was crazy because I'm upstairs and I'm in my bedroom with the door closed and all of a sudden I'm hearing people talking and I'm thinking are there neighbors outside the door or outside the window no, that's impossible. Nobody's out there. And this it just kept ramping up. And pretty soon we were hearing doors opening and closing, people going up and down the stairs. Um, one night somebody slammed, uh, it sounded like somebody took a fist and slammed their fist down on the table. And they did that at 3 a.m. and then at 3.30 a.m. And then the same recording picks up somebody coming over to the microphone on the computer and uh, tapping it with their finger. We have that. Uh, we have a recording of that. So it was getting a little crazy. <laughs> so one night when I was getting ready for bed, again, I heard something slam or something happened that made me jump and it scared me. And I was like, okay, this has got to end. And uh, I went downstairs. I turned on all the lights. You know, got out my cross and I said, okay, everybody. <laughs> I said, I have a feeling that you people are from the Titanic. And I, you know, I'm very sorry what happened to you, but if you have a bone to pick with my son, who could have been Thomas Andrews, who designed the ship, he died with you. He went down with the ship. He was given a choice to get on a lifeboat, and he refused. He left a wife and a a daughter, and you need to move on and leave him alone. He died with you. Remember that. And after that night, the the activity completely stopped. Oh, that's so So cool. Yeah, it was amazing, but the noise, I mean, you could hear it audibly upstairs. It was it was that well, loud. Date-wise, was it close to the date that the Titanic sank? Oh, my goodness, let me think. Well, um, come to think of it, it was just a month after because the Titanic sunk in April and we shot uh, almost, God, now that you mention it, we shot it uh, almost a month after in May. So it was close to the the anniversary, what, yeah, as we were collecting when, the items. That's, yeah, I that's never thought when about that. Activity usually starts. Yeah, yeah, and it, it it was just um, I've never heard so I'm you know I, we would hear things or somebody would see a shadow person or you know we had those uh, sporadic moments. But when we started collecting this stuff for the Titanic, I tell you, there was, there was a party going on in my basement every night for about two weeks. That's very cool. <laughs> and, 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 and you also mentioned this uh, in, in The Secrets of the Universe, the creepy uh, painting of the man shoveling coal into the Titanic boiler. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that uh, that one needs explained 
for for the audience. Uh, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that? I I I I found that one like you know really like one of those like so hair stand up on the back of your neck kind of. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was it's an amazing thing because um, we had gone through this episode with my son for two years. Uh, between um, 1998 and 2000, when he was four to six years old. Well, in the 2000, when he was six, they brought the Titanic exhibit to the uh, Museum of Science and, uh, and Industry in Chicago. And my daughter called and said, you know, I think, you know, Jamie was only six at the time. I, she said, I think we should take him there and let him see the the artifacts, and maybe that will bring some kind of closure to him and you know I thought well why not you know he knows more about the Titanic than we do so you know I wasn't really worried about him being traumatized I was more concerned with you know how he was going to react to it and uh, so we went down there and we uh, went through the exhibit and there were other children in the exhibit and they were acting like normal kids, you know, running around and doing stuff they weren't supposed to do. And my six-year-old son is like studying everything. If he would have had a magnifying glass, he would have used that because he, he, he looked at every last item for minutes at a time and he was completely transfixed. And so we get to the part of the exhibit where there's an actual boiler that they brought up from the floor of the ocean. And, uh, and he used to cry over the, the guys in the boiler room died first. As soon as they hit the, the iceberg and the emergency doors closed, the men in the boiler room, they were trapped. And that's the first thing that he used to tell me. He used to say, it was a, it's stupid, it was stupid, Mama, it was a stupid mistake. They shouldn't have, they died first. They shouldn't have had to do that. He was very concerned with that. So when we saw the boiler, I'm like, oh boy, here we go, you know, and there was a boiler and there was mirrors on both sides and there was a a curtain and a spotlight on it and everything. And uh, so when we're with a bunch of people and so I, I look to the right, I see a wall of mirrors. I look to the left, I see a wall of mirrors and I see a life size oil painting of a man shoveling coal into a boiler. Now, I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, they really went out of their way to, you know, to show what it must have been like, you know, because these men had, you know, heavy wool pants on and, uh, you know, he had a high neck shirt, white shirt with the suspenders and, you know, and I, I just, it made me feel like, my gosh, you know, the suffering that they went through to to do that kind of job. And so we got pushed, you know, closer and closer to the left side where I saw this painting, and we get up to the painting, which is above me, because it was a life. What I saw was a life-size painting, so it was a good six-foot painting. I look up at the painting, and the guy turns and looks at me. The man in the painting looks at me, and when he moved his head, it scared me so badly that I closed my eyes, like, oh no, you know, like paintings don't move. And I opened my eyes, and there was no painting, and I was staring at myself in a mirror. (laughs) And I leaned over to my daughter, and I said, did you just see, and she goes, a man? And I said, yep. And we described exactly what he looked like. And to my daughter, he looked like a guy who was standing in a place there was nowhere to stand. That's how she perceived him. My mind made him into an oil painting because that made sense. Mm-hmm. But when we when he looked at us, 
we he looked like we scared him, which was crazy, crazy insane. So, well, it, well, it, how, how, do you, how do you explain that you know, there's at least two people who saw something? So it, it's not uh, a mass hallucination. Exactly. It, it, it's just yeah. it, 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 it's it's like you know all, all those p- people saw the you know the Phoenix Lights mm-hmm. experience. Uh, I, I, it, it's not just a one person experience. It's just intriguing to just kind of ponder how multiple people uh, there could be multiple eyewitnesses to a. Uh, unexplained phenomenon well yeah especially when he looked at us like we scared him that's what really got me because i'm thinking what did we look like to him you know was the ship already sinking and maybe i was relate you know we were related to him and he saw us as as angels or i you know it, it really makes me wonder what he saw because he certainly looked very shocked to see us. So, needless to say, we were more shocked. (laughs) It was, you know, first time I've ever seen a full-body apparition that moved and, you know, pretty much acknowledged me and then vanished, like right in front of my eyes, gone. You know, I I just wonder if he saw uh, you as... You know, um, you know, ha- having that, you know, uh, I don't know what we call it, like, uh, you know, the, the Victorian type, uh, you know, dress, e- you know, e- evening wear, you know, so, so, so something like that. You, you would see, uh, you know, people elegantly d- dressed, you know, doing a promenade around the decks of the Titanic. Mm hmm. No, I just, I, you know, I just, it's like, you know, looking across different timelines. It was it, probably, it was, fo- it, <clears throat> Mark, it was probably folding time. Mm-hmm. And and mm-hmm. when you fold time, you have two generations looking at each other. Or three or right. four generations. Yeah. And, you know. It, it was an interesting. Uh, I I just thought it was a uh, you know really captivating story in in her book. I I I just don't have an explanation for it. No, it's it's um you know to me too. It's like did, was that my son? You know maybe he worked in the boiler room and wasn't a designer, but it just you know he obviously saw us the same way we saw him, and I've you know. I've never had anything like that happen to me before. I've seen shadow people before. Um, I've seen lots of different things, orbs and stuff like that. But when you see somebody, you know, in a painting turn and look at you, <laughs> and then and then poof, they're gone. Uh, that that's you know, I waited my whole life to see something like that. So I'm I'm very happy it happened, even though it was a very sad situation. But it did help my son actually. After we went there, he uh, um. Uh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just gonna, uh, how 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 
did it help Jamie? Um, well, he, he, you know, studied every little thing. He did not see the man since he was so much shorter in the crowd, and we didn't say anything to him about it. So he went home, and about a week later, um, I, and I, I, you know, it sounds a little dramatic, but uh, he had um, he had night terrors those the two years that he was going through this, where he would go to bed, he'd fall asleep, and then all of a sudden you'd hear him bolt out of bed, and he'd come running out the door, and he'd be running, he'd go up and down the hallways, opening doors, closing doors, looking like he was trying to get out, and we'd have to you know, chase after him and make sure he didn't fall down the stairs. And so this went on for two years. And uh, so we took him to the exhibit. And about a week after that, he was in his bedroom sleeping and I was home alone. And all of a sudden I heard this banging on the bedroom wall. It just rhythmic, like bang, 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 bang. And I jumped up. I went down the hall. I opened the door. Here's my son, six years old. He's up on all fours. He's on his bed. He's staring at the floor, like in horror, and he is shaking so hard that the bed's hitting the wall. So he, to me, he's, he looks like he's going to go into convulsions. And I came into the room, and I stopped when I realized I started walking toward him. I realized he couldn't tell I was there. So he was staring at the floor, and he was shaking, just shaking uncontrollably. And before I could even move, this voice came out of him and it wasn't his voice. It was a man's voice. And he screamed, she's going down. And it just, Oh my God, the hair on my arm stood up. I started to cry. I realized he was reliving the sinking of the ship. So uh, all I could do is sit next to him and wait and, you know, kind of rub his back, wait till he calmed down enough. And sure enough, after a while, he fell asleep. I covered him up. He went to bed the next day. When he was up, I told him, I said, honey, you had such a scary nightmare last night. I said, uh, you were shaking so hard the bed was hitting the wall. And he just looked at me like, you know, I don't know anything. And he goes, well, you know, Mama, the water was freezing. <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. The water was freezing. And that's all he said about it. And then little by little, he stopped talking about the Titanic, and about maybe a month later, he just didn't talk about it anymore. It was done. So, yeah, it was quite the two years. (laughs) We couldn't really leave him with babysitters. We had to, you know, because we had to warn people, if he gets up and he starts running, you make sure that he doesn't fall down the stairs or something, because that went on for a long time. And now he just looks back on it and says, Mom, you know, I don't remember any of it anymore. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I have you on film, so don't even go there. <laughs> yeah, he's, he, he's been doing political things in school, and he says he's uh, if, if he goes into politics, he's going to deny everything, So, which is going to make it hard because he's on TV talking about it, but that's okay. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, you know, secrets of the universe. You, you also bring up. Uh, is it um, a you know it's a somewhat new um, area of research is with in, in, indigo uh, children. Um, mm-hmm. 
is you know do do you think Jamie's heightened sense of empathy is you know you know somehow connected to him being an indigo child or is there some kind of connection Oh yeah, I mean the the whole generation of his um not all of the kids, but the kids that he hung out with. He's mm-hmm. 25 now, and uh even back when they were younger, they were always working on projects and, you know, trying to invent things or, you know, having computer game uh competitions and things like that. They they didn't drink, they didn't smoke, they didn't, you know, sneak out late at night to go to parties. They were I literally I thought they were all aliens because I was not like that as a teenager. <laughs> and yeah, I, 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 I'm not an indigo child either. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, but there there's a whole um now there's a couple actually generations of kids that are indigo crystal children that are very intuitive, they're healers, they're artists, they're so I mean, they have mm-hmm. empathy um that I mean, it's amazing and it's so exciting to see the new, you know, what we have to look forward to in the next 20 years when these kids start really getting into, you know, politics and how things are run. I think things are going to change a lot because they're very uh, aware. You know, um, actually, my son is um, uh, was a mentor this year out in L.A. at um, Al Gore's Global, Global Climate Summit. He's involved with that through through school, and uh, he also worked on a um, campaign for Lisa Ring, who ran for House of Representatives from Georgia. So he's, uh, you know, these kids are just so, they're all about taking care of the planet, you know, b- being fair to each other. And I, I really, I'm optimistic that they're going to they're gonna do things right. And I hope somebody steps in and does that soon. <laughs> well, you know, you, you, know, you do see what, uh, people like Mary Rodwell and you know, uh, others, uh uh, doing doing research on these um, characteristics mm-hmm. that uh, seem like they've missed the last several uh, you know, uh, g- generations, and there's like you know just been a sudden r- resurgence of uh, of uh, and these more humane traits and. Uh, you know, it, it's you know just uh, it, it 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 really is an interesting topic. Like, you know, where, where did it just you know come from? Uh, you know, is it just a some kind of uh, childhood response to um, I don't know, like out of control capitalism kind kind of thing that they just instinctively know that it's um you know they don't want to be part of it i you know just you know, yeah uh, i i, I get what you mean because insights. yeah yeah they don't want to um you know that he my son would rather not have a cart that takes gas you know he'd like to see us go to other forms of fuel and and stuff like mm-hmm. that and you know like i said when i was his age i wasn't thinking of any of that stuff 
and right. they're very, you know, very conscious of uh, of all of that, and and it's exciting. Mm-hmm. And you know, look at all the the young people that we sent up to Capitol Hill this last, um, you know, election. 127 women, and uh, a lot of them young and fresh and ready to, I think, do the right thing for once. I'm really, I'm very hopeful because we need some good leadership. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> okay. Better be careful no, there. No, no it's, uh, it's fine. Uh, you know, the First Amendment applies to night light. Um, but you know, and, and you, know, you also had uh, an interesting uh, explanation. I don't know, just may go back to uh, you know, some of the you know, literature found, you know, even in the Middle Ages. But you, know, you do get, give an example of a soul retrieval. Yes, which I didn't and, even and, know that's what it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that, that was. I, 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 I'm like you. I was like, I, I, okay, I'm not familiar with this term, but uh, you know, once you know, it, it was explained, and it's like, uh, okay, uh, that that is really interesting. So, you know, uh, can you exp- explain uh, Tamara's? Uh, uh, comment there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I told Tamara Gleason about it, my my friend that I do a lot of work with, um, she's a great psychic, as you know. You've had her and Donette on your show, and they're both wonderful. And uh, I told her about this um, after we first met. We've known each other about 10 years now. But back in the early 90s, um, let me think. I had a newspaper that I put out every month called Rock Central. It was about rock and roll music. And, and pretty much every year on the anniversary of when I met the band, which was in August of 77, I would, I would write a little piece about it, you know, put a picture of Bon in it, and, you know, just kind of say, hey, you know, uh, happy anniversary to something that, you know, the greatest day of my life as far as <laughs> changing my life for the better. But um, after uh, I printed that, I sent that to their publicity company, and uh, their publicity company actually called me and said, Marvel Comics is going to call you because we're having, they're doing a comic on ACDC, and they're having trouble finding pictures of Bon Scott. Now, this is, you know, way before now you can find, you know, a new picture of Bon Scott online almost every day. You know, there's literally 100,000 pictures of Bon Scott now on the Internet. But back in the early 90s, um, there were not. And uh, I was shocked by that. I had no idea that, um, you know, they couldn't even find good pictures of him. So um, around that time after he had passed, I had had a dream about seeing him. It was a very sad dream for me, but I didn't know what it meant until I explained this to Tamara a good 10 years after it happened. But... I dreamed one night that I was I was where he, Bon Scott had died. I was near the building where he was out in the car, outside in the car. I knew I was where he had died. And I went to an, and I know it sounds really weird, but this is what I did, is I went downstairs to an underground apartment that didn't have any windows or lights. 
the only light that was coming in was when he opened the door and Bon was living there. And I saw him, I gave him a big hug and I said, Bon, what are you doing here? And I was very upset with him, like, you don't belong here. This isn't where you, you belong. You're coming with me. And I, you know, that was kind of the, the, the gist of the dream. Um, he's always been my guardian angel. And when Tamara heard that story, she said, you did a soul retrieval. No wonder he's your guardian angel. So who knows? I think maybe I helped him. I don't know. But I that dream was very vivid and very sad. And then... Uh, right after that, I believe 97, they came out with Bonfire, the box set uh, dedicated to Bon Scott, and then his legacy just exploded. And, of course, now he's still, you know, huge, bigger than he's ever been. <laughs> but, you know, you know pr- probably what, uh, like, D- Dante's Inferno might be something like uh, something analogous to what you're saying or you know the harrowing of hell uh, uh, yeah it you know, you le- know le- legend yeah i mean it it didn't seem like it you know i was literally in hell but i was he was definitely in a very dark and 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 mm-hmm. you know like a dead end place where there's nowhere to go is what i got when i saw him and I'm and I just I grabbed him. I said, "You are coming with me. You do not belong here." And if he died, you know, which was reported, you know, alcohol poisoning, you have to remember too that once a body passes away and your soul is free of the body, your soul is not necessarily free of um, the drugs or the alcohol you may have ingested right before you died. So. A lot of ways, I think that does affect too their perception of when they first cross over. That might, you know, make it harder. I think for them because they're not in a clear state of mind at the time. But that's okay. just my theory. Yeah, uh, I one of the shows. I think we have book. Uh, we're we're. we're it's one of the people uh, we may be talking to soon. I, I, I have to get, go through all the calendars, but uh, <laughs> there is a guest who might be, um, you know, pro, you know g- giving our listeners some I- information on a subject like that. Yeah, just we'll have to keep. Uh, well, uh, soul retrieval, you know, keep Mark, is something is something that shamans do, and okay. it's. It's not necessarily that a soul is lost. It's more the soul has forgotten where it's supposed to be. And right, so exactly. It, it, you know, it's, it's not like a piece of your soul floats off into the ether. It's, it's mm-hmm. that you forget where you're supposed to be. And, um, yeah, exactly, yeah. It, it, yeah. And, um, you know, Hopefully, if we get this guest book, um, I don't have the book in front of me. I didn't know. <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I am surrounded by a whole bunch of other books. But, but uh, <laughs> yeah, th- th- that idea does appear in um, quite a few other cultures. It's it, it just it, it, it's really an interesting 
topic, and I, I was just glad Susan well, and Tamara brought that up in um, you know the book. Just I just uh, was really intrigued by the subject. Oh yeah, you know, and and a funny thing too is that um, I've had prophetic dreams about ACDC mm-hmm. for the last thirty years. I've probably had at least two dozen of them. And when I see any one of the band in my dream, clearly, I write it down the next day, and it always manifests, even if it's years ahead of time, which is crazy, because um, five years before I saw them in Italy, I dreamed that I was in Italy seeing ACDC at an outdoor concert. I'd never been to Europe. I didn't even have a passport when I was invited. And I, I, they paid to fly me over there, and um, the uh, north or my friend of mine in Italy set this up, and I did a book signing. But it wasn't like I just went and bought a ticket, and went and saw them in Italy. Somebody invited me, and I got paid to go over there. And mm-hmm. five years after the dream, I was at an outdoor concert on a sunny day, seeing ACDC in Italy. So I have a very funny connection with those guys. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'd like to have a dream like that too. <laughs> so that'd be fun. And you, know, you also go into the uh, uh, numerology of the band. We can, you know, uh, you know maybe segue from you know the numerology into uh, you know fr- frequently asked questions as well. But you, know, you want to talk a little bit about all, all the numerology from you know, the, the members of the band and uh, what it all means to rock fans. Well, you know, it's it's. Um, I love numbers. I'm not an expert at numerology, but I certainly love to study it and play with numbers. And what you can do is take the name on your birth certificate, which um, people, you know, that are married, they can do their birth certificate name or and then they can do the numbers for their name, married name, because when you change your name, you change the vibration of everything in your life, actually. And every letter um, correlates to a number, like A is 1, B is 2, C is 3, and there's only nine numbers one through nine, and then 10, you break that down to a one, 11 is two, you know, 13 or 12 is three and so on. So what I did was I um, show you how to do that. And you can come up with um, from your birth date and your name on your birth certificate, you can figure out your um, soul number, which is what you are now, your uh, life lesson number, which is what you're here to learn, your outer personality number, which is what people, how people see you, how they perceive you, and then your path of destiny, which is um, very interesting. <laughs> and uh, I had done um, Malcolm and Angus's numbers, and then I did Bon Scott's. And all mm-hmm. three of them have the same number combination, only in different parts of their chart. But it shows you how they were so they how they work together so easily, because they literally, when you look at their numbers, they were meant to work together. 
it's it's just it really blew my mind <laughs> when I got when I figured it all out because um uh it just it fits so perfectly when you read about you know uh how it describes what Angus would be like or Malcolm and Bond it just described exactly what kind of lives they were going to lead and what their destiny was and Bond's destiny and Angus's as well was uh there are nine which is the a culmination of of uh, achievement and they were meant to um give their gifts to the world at all costs, which Bond went a little over, overboard with that. And, uh, and that also comes up in his numbers. of uh, moder- uh, The key was moderation for him. And uh, that, unfortunately, he didn't follow that. But um, numbers are very interesting. You can do numbers for a company's name or a band name or, you know, your new married name or anything like that, or even a child that you want to have um, in the future and you've already chosen a name. Do the numbers. (laughs) Make sure you're giving them good numbers. There's a great book out there called Forever Numerology by Lynn Buss, and it's up on the Mm -hmm. the, – Internet, so you can actually, he's got a calculator in there, it'll it'll do your numbers for you. Oh, that's so cool. I love that. There's so much on the Internet that you can um, <laughs> learn from, so much to read. It's just endless because, you know, obviously with the Akashic Records, which is, you know, the mind of God, if you will, everything is correlated to a number. Because if it wasn't, um, how could they, who could keep track? <laughs> So it figures that um, numbers are very much more powerful than people give them credit for, I think. That's true. Okay. So, so uh, speaking of numbers, we have to look at August 16th, 1977. Ah, uh, yes. That, that, that gives... The the audience uh, a little more background on why why you can uh, be so accurate with you know saying that these numbers are uh, accurate uh, depictions of my friends. So uh, can can you tell us a little bit about um, what happened on this uh, what the day that Elvis died. Right, exactly. And happy birthday to Elvis yesterday. Um, Mm -hmm. He passed away on August 16, 1977, and I was driving through um, Madison, where I lived at the time. I uh, I was trying to work for a local music paper. Um, At the time, it was just print, radio, and TV. You know, there was no Internet, no cell phones, no 24-hour TV, none of that. So print was pretty big. And there was this little paper in town that wrote about bands, and, and I that's what I wanted to do. I was all about that. And, of course, you know, I was the only girl, so they weren't that interested in me or what I had to offer. And uh, <laughs> so that day um, I was driving along, and I was driving past the offices that they had in Madison and this voice said to me, pull over and try to get an assignment. And I thought, 
yeah, right. You know, they won't give me hardly anything, but whatever. And it just, you know, this voice kept bugging me and saying, pull over, pull over and get an assignment. So I pulled over, I walked into the office, the, um, and I have to give a shout out to Gary Summers. He was my editor at the time. Now he's on uh, Antique Roadshow. Uh, he does mem- mm. rock and roll memorabilia. <laughs> and uh, he was the editor at the time. And uh, I walked in, and he had just hung the phone up, and he looked at me like, what do you want? And I said, hey, you know, I'm just driving by. thought maybe I'd stop and see if there's anything I could do for you guys. I mean, I'm wide open. And he says, well, you know, I just got off the phone with Stardate, which is a big promoter in Milwaukee that did all the major shows. And um, he said, I just got off the phone with Stardate, and they, they got a band coming in downtown tonight, the Stone Hearth, and they need a gopher. You know, there's no pay, but, you know, you probably get a friend in for free. And I said, okay, yeah, what time do they need somebody? And he says, well, you know, try to get down there about 4 o'clock. And I said, great, great, I'll do it. I'm on it. And I ran for the door, and just as I got to the door, I turned around, and I said, well, what band is it? Do do you know? Have you ever heard of them? And he goes, "Ah, I don't think so. They're from Australia. They're called ACDC. And I thought, okay, that's very weird. (laughs) I'd never heard of them before. I'd never heard their music. had no idea what I was getting into. And uh, I went down to the club and I met the road crew first, which was only three guys. They were um, driving around in a uh, rider truck, the the gear, and the, the band was traveling around in a station wagon. And they were broke, like broke, broke, <laughs> which is funny now when you think about it. And uh, they played that night for $3 to get in in about – in front of about 75 people, including the bartenders. And needless to say, and I'd, I'd seen everybody. I My thing was going to the Coliseum as a teenager in high school, and I saw everybody. I saw Fleetwood Mac, Deep Purple, Black Sabbath, um, Cream, uh, you know, everybody. When I saw ACDC that night, they weren't even uh, a minute into live wire, and the hair on my arms were standing straight up. And I backed away from the band because it was only about maybe 30 feet between me and the soundboard and the band. I backed all the way until I backed up to the wall behind me. And I had never heard anything like it before, and I'd never seen them. So I thought something was wrong with Angus because he wouldn't stop running, and then he was throwing himself down on the floor, and I'm thinking, is he sick? Is he okay? I don't. <laughs> I didn't, had no idea what he was doing. And, uh, of course, you know, after they played, and this is 77, and they already, that night they played um, Live Wire, Problem Child, Hell Ain't a Bad Place to Be, Whole Lot of Rosie, Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap. Um, they had all these hits already. And nobody knew who they were. So the band played that night. I ended up becoming pen pals with the the roadie, Barry Taylor, who was a dear friend of mine. And we kept in touch for the next three years. And I got to hang out with the band every time they came through the Midwest, Milwaukee, Chicago, you know, um, uh, Madison, Rockford. And I just, you know, luckily kept in touch with them all these years. We've, you know, stayed friends and the funniest thing is the night that I met them, and I don't know why I even said this, but I told them that someday you guys are going to be as big as the Rolling Stones, which they thought was hilarious. 
really hilarious um, to the point of Angus pulled his shoe off and stuck his foot in my face and said, does that mean I can buy me some new socks, you know, someday? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I, I think maybe you'll be able to buy some socks someday, Angus, you know, needless to say that he probably owns lots of socks now. But uh, uh, it was a running joke uh, between us for 40 years. And they did become the only band in history to co-headline with the Stones at the SARS benefit in 2003. So they did become, and but they never, they won't, they would never take that compliment. The last time I got to talk to Malcolm, which was sad since he, you know, became ill and uh, was not well for several years before he passed. When I saw him on the Black Ice tour. The night that he was so, I mean, he was so good. You know, they just started the tour, and Black Ice was, you know, going up the charts, came out at number one in, like, 20 countries, and it was just so exciting. And I hadn't seen him for quite a while now because they hadn't been on tour for seven years. And the first thing they did was they started talking about my book and everything, and I didn't know, you know, what they had thought of it. And they, they said they liked it, but they didn't. Or they weren't going to buy one. They wanted to uh, sign copy from me, which was hilarious because Angus actually said, you know, I could afford to go to the store and buy one. And I'm like, yeah, I bet you can. <laughs> but I, I asked him that night. I said, now do you think you're as big as the Rolling Stones? And Malcolm looked at Angus, and they both had a little grin on their face. And Malcolm says, mm, I don't know. I, I can't say we did blow him off the stage at the, at the Stars Benefit. And they both kind of giggled. <laughs> that was, you know, they still wouldn't admit that, you know, because they loved the Stones. That's, that was their idols. And I didn't know that either. I didn't know that they idolized the Stones when I met them. I had no idea. So. So, uh, um you know, you knew the band as they were first you know, making it big in America. You know, Bond's the uh, what uh, front man for the band. Um, how, how did you know when Brian was brought in? Uh, what you know what? Uh, impacted he make you know try, trying to fill uh you know such big shoes that bond bond left well you know it that the story is very uh i don't want to say complicated but very interesting because um brian johnson his original band in in northern england was named geordie and Bon Scott was in three bands. He was uh, big bands. He was in the Valentines in the 60s, which was a pop band in Australia. Then he joined Fraternity, which was also an Austral- Australian band, kind of like the band, you know, or Grateful Dead, mm-hmm. kind of a jam band. And that band traveled to England, and Bon Scott and Brian Johnson's bands played together, and they met each other. And Bond saw Brian perform. So, and this wasn't remembered when he died, but he did, they did say that he said one time, he said, if you ever need to replace me, you need to get the guy in Geordie. Now, once he died, and this was years after he said this, 
I believe a fan sent them, uh, some fan sent them a cassette tape of Jordy and said, check this guy out. And they listened to him. Um, Brian tells a story that when they first called him, um, they wouldn't tell him what band he was going to uh, audition for. And it, he, it, I think when they finally said it was, you know, ACDC or something, he hung up on them because he thought they were pulling a prank on him. So he was kind of upset because he thought, this is a sick joke. Why would you call me, you know, right after Bon Scott died? But they did. They called him back. He went down to London. He um, didn't know that he was supposed to go up into the, the jam room. He stayed downstairs and played pool at the roadies. And I think it was Malcolm came downstairs saying, you know, the the bloke blew us off, you know, and here he was playing pool with the roadies and didn't know he was just supposed to go upstairs. <laughs> and uh, I do remember they jammed on some songs, and Malcolm said, which was meant a lot, was he was the first person that made them smile after Bond's death. And Brian, I, I've, now I've known Brian for over 40 years, and I knew Bond for a little around three years before he passed. And Bon, or Brian is so much like Bon personality-wise, um, generosity, very humble, uh, funny, constantly cracking jokes. He's so much like Bon that it was it 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 was meant to be that that he was to take his place. There there could have been no one else that would have done it better, in my opinion. Okay, and. Um, uh, had- has uh, Brian always worn his beanie? Usually, yeah. Yeah, he does. Yeah, he's uh, thinning a little bit on top there, but um, he usually has his hat on when he's on stage. <laughs> okay. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, the, the, yeah, that does seem like a real synchronicity-type story about... Uh, uh, Bon just pressed with Brian. Well, and to add to that, um, Bon Scott saw Brian put his guitar player up on his shoulders, and that's where Bon got the idea to carry Angus around. So they're intertwined even more (laughs) when you really look at it. Just amazing. It, It really amazes me. You know, and Brian is just you know, he is so funny. Like, like Bon would be the guy that after the show he would party with the roadies kind of guy, and that's the way Brian is. A lot of times he'll stay at the hotel with the roadies because it's more fun than staying where the band stays. So <laughs> he's he's okay. very, you know, he's a great guy. I mean, I just, I love Brian, and, and he's so respectful of Bon because he was a big fan of Bon himself. And he he was scared to death the first he said the first night he appeared with the band his knees shook so bad he barely could walk up on stage that's how scared he was but he did okay. pretty good okay and um, yeah uh, it seems very possible that um, you are m- mentioned in. One of their songs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, talk, talk that goes about back. That uh, 
Yeah, that goes back to um, the the uh, album Power Ridge. Uh, some call it Power Rage, some say Power Ridge, and it was the one that came out after Let There Be Rock and before Highway to Hell. And uh, that was actually the last album that they did with uh, George Young, their brother, and Harry Vanda. So Young and Vanda produced the first six albums, and that was the last one that they did. And I, I love that album because that you know it's got Riff Raff, Rock and Roll Damnation, Down Payment Blues, Gone Shootin', um, tons of great songs. And it's, it's... Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it's got just... And I, I love the way... I mean, I... They did. It was Highway to Hell was brilliant, but it was different. Um, Powerage is still kind of the raw live sound of ACDC to me. It's one of my favorite albums because of that. And when I interviewed them at the end of '77, um, I did an article on them. And right after the holidays, they went to Australia to Sydney to record Powerage. And I was in touch on a weekly basis with Barry. So I sent them copies of my interview that I did with them, which was hilarious because most of the stuff they said to me I couldn't print. So, you know, they gave me a really hard time (laughs) trying to get any straight answers out of them. So I wrote a very comical take on the band, and I sent it to them, and I heard that they loved it. They thought it was really funny. But my friend Barry kept telling me that he helped Bon with some of the lyrics. And I, I was like, that's nice, you know, and he told me that a couple times, and I, it just didn't didn't occur to me to say, well, what did you help him with, or why do you keep telling me this? <laughs> I just didn't really pay attention to it, and 30 years later, I'm, you know, studying the band for the uh, story of ACDC, Let There Be Rock, and Bon used my name in Down Payment Blues, and he always called me Susie, and he loved to tease Barry about me. So he used to raspberry about him all the time, or about me all the time, um, even at meetings, which I heard from uh, the manager that they used to tease him about, oh, we got to get through Wisconsin, you know, let's book a date in Wisconsin. We know we have to go through Wisconsin. So um, can't say for sure, but I kind of think, yes, that was what uh, he was trying to tell me. <laughs> okay, and, you know, uh, people read... <clears throat> you know your ACDC frequently asked questions uh, book. You, you know you have you know all kinds of inform you know, behind the scenes information uh, in, in there you know, like uh, about the albums, the the, the tours, um, you know the equipment they use. Uh, it's, you know, it's a, a excellent book about, um, you know, th- things that people would w- want to know about, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the band, um, you know, you know, I learned, uh, you know, it's like, um, oh, uh, Burning Alive, uh, you know, it's like, yeah, you said you know that was really like really one. There are very few uh, uh, political songs, mm-hmm. uh, and it gives like you know uh, you know just by reading that it it you know, gives you uh, you know takes you back twenty some years 
and your explanation for what you know, the, the song is about um, you know, helps you to uh, put into historical perspective what was going on at the time and what the song was about. So you know mm-hmm. that uh, that that was interesting, and you know it's like uh, you know the, uh, you know the was it the the uh, there there was a uh, a fight between ACDC's uh, Roadies and Deep Purple. Uh, oh yeah, and, and, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just you know some interesting stuff as how the you know early days of the band. And you know, it just it gives you. Um, I, I just really uh, enjoyed reading that book. Uh, you know, um, just like history, and you know, uh, and we do have um, a rock history uh, show coming up uh, next month. Um, but you know, it it, it is part of the, the history. Of you know pop culture that uh, Barbara and I do cover, and it, it, it's just a terrific book. Well, thank you. It's yeah, it's kind of a dictionary. It's funny because when mm-hmm. I gave Brian, I got to give Brian a copy in person uh, after they played Wrigley Field the night in Chicago in 2015, mm-hmm. and uh, Brian took it and he started. Of course, he always looks through all the pictures, and uh, he started looking through the book and he goes, "Oh, so this is a, a dictionary on the band," and I said. Pretty much, yeah. And he says, so, so there's going to be stuff in here about myself I don't know. <laughs> and I said, maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure. <laughs> so he was really funny about it because it is. It's like, you know, 356 pages of all ACDC, mm-hmm. all facts and all crazy stuff. And there's no, plenty and, of crazy stuff. Well, and, you know, uh, you, know you do include how – uh, MTV re- revived uh, the importance of ACDC's uh, legacy. Oh yeah, with Be- Beavis and Butthead. Yeah. When Mike Mike Judge came out with Beavis and Butthead, and uh, <laughs> um, believe it or not, the T-shirts that said they wore ACDC and Metallica, they were supposed to wear Slayer and Metallica. And somebody decided that Slayer was not, you know, known well enough or too heavy maybe. So they switched it to ACDC. And ACDC had not come out with an album for several years. They had not done Razor's Edge yet. And uh, this um, Beavis and Butthead just, you know, opened them up to a whole new audience again of kids, you know, watching MTV and going, hey, who are they? And uh, it just, it really helped. And then, of course, they came out and killed it with Razor's Edge, one of the best albums they, they've done, in my opinion. And um, the tour was amazing. Yeah. So they came back out on top, as they always do. Yeah. And you, know, you, 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 know, you also have uh, you know, a little bit of information in there about uh, how Bond learning to play the bagpipes. Mm-hmm. For it, it's it's a long way to the top, so it, yeah, it's the greatest rock song with bagpipes. Exactly, and you know, um, I was on the radio at the time that Corn uh, did a song with bagpipes, and 
one of the guys at the radio station said, you know, oh, this is, you know, this is amazing. Nobody's ever done bagpipes on it, you know, with a rock song. And I said, uh, yeah, they did 30 years ago. ACDC, it's a long way to the top. <laughs> so not new. Sorry. <laughs> Corn stole it from them. Okay. So, um, yeah, so, since you are friends with the band, uh, what is, you know, oh, you, know the, you know, these little rumors that are circulating here and there about um, after this uh, hi- hiatus, uh, you know, or you know, they're kind of back in the studio doing something. Yeah, do, do you know anything about what's going on with the band? Well, what I've seen, I can't say that I've been told anything official, but there was uh, pictures taken earlier this year, uh, earlier in 2018, excuse me, of Angus up at um, Brian Adams uh, Warehouse Studios in Vancouver, where they've done their last two albums, I believe, maybe three. And uh, they also had pictures of Phil Rudd, Stevie Young, who, you know, filled in for for Malcolm, and um, Brian Johnson. So I think they're working on a new album. I can't say that for sure, and I can't say for sure if they're going to tour, but I'm certainly praying for it. Because I think Angus wants to keep rocking. I hope he does. Okay. All right. Yeah, I, I, I hope so too. I, I, yeah, it's been um, pretty quiet right yeah, now, but yeah, they're they're good about that. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's that's what I was asking. It's like, yeah, you, you know, you, you know, see, you know, the post showing up on Facebook, but you know, who, who knows if it's uh, true or not? But um, you know. You, you would know more than I do, so I just thought, thought I'd just ask. Hopefully, the, you know, some of the listeners will um, be uh, a, a, you know, tr- trying to f- find out more a- a- as well, and you know, ho- hopefully, we will get a, some kind of announcement soon. Oh yeah, no, I, I predict that if they do a new album and a tour, they're going to break records everywhere. They're going to break ticket sale records. They're going to break album sale records. <laughs> They're going to just be on top all over again. And that's I, I would love to see that happen for Angus now that Malcolm is gone and, you know, his brother, all of his brothers have passed. He's the only brother left. And, um, you know, the people closest to him and Malcolm were Brian and Cliff and Phil. So um, I'm just keeping my fingers crossed. It, 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 you know, to, since you know we, you know, you, you, know, you did mention uh, George, um, you know, we, sh- you know, w- really should uh, discuss, you know, the the role, of, you know, like the o- older brother, you know, uh, you know, he he was in. Uh, 
a band that you know had had a really big hit as well. So, what was George's influence on his younger brothers? Oh my God! Without George Young, there would never be an ACDC. Because George um, hit it big in the band Easy Beats in Australia. They were called the Australian Beatles at one time. They were so popular. And their song, um, Friday on My Mind, is now the national song for Australia. And oh, is it really? He and, yeah, he, that's so cool. And he and his friend, um, let me think now, he went up to England for a while and uh, got together with Harry Vanda. That's when they started producing together. And when he was in England and his little brothers were still in Australia, he would send them albums of music that they couldn't get down there. So that was the beginning of their education. And uh, and then one time um, Angus told me that they came home from school and, uh, you know, one day George was just George and the next day George was like part of the Beatles and they came home, and there were girls trying to climb over the fence to get in the yard to get to George. And he said, that's the day Malcolm and I decided what we were going to do for our life. As <laughs> soon as they saw the girls trying to climb in the windows, <laughs> they're like, okay, we're good. And uh, so when um, Malcolm started ACDC, um, George, you know, like I said, he produced the first six albums he and Harry Vanda. He would play bass when they didn't have a bass player. Um, they went through a lot of bass players and drummers in the beginning, so many that it was like a, almost like a puzzle to put together how many people they went through. But sometimes when they didn't have a drummer or a bass player, George would fill in. So he helped them write songs, he produced them, and he even sat in when they needed him to. But he was, there, you know, he was a huge influence on how they produce their music and, you know, because Malcolm, they're one of one of the few bands that go in and play live in the studio and record it that way. And then they put how, on the vocals and the guitar lead after. How did they come up with their name? Oh, my gosh. Well, it's two different stories, and I'm going to stick with the sewing machine. Um, <laughs> one says sewing machine, one says it was on the back of a vacuum cleaner, but... Margaret, the only sister out of eight kids, there's seven boys and one sister, oldest Margaret Young, who uh, used to make Angus's schoolboy outfit outfits after you know he started deciding to wear that on stage, and they saw the ACDC on the back of the the sewing machine, and they thought that's super cool, you know, alternating and direct current, that's electricity, that's you know, that's power. And uh, so they named the band ACDC, and then uh, one night they were going to a club somewhere, and the cab driver said to Malcolm, he says, oh, so you guys swing both ways, huh? And he almost punched the guy out. <laughs> Malcolm was like, what, do you want to get punched? Because they had no idea that, that, that it meant that. So um, later on, uh, they would ask the band, and especially Bond, they would say, are you AC or DC? And Bond said, I'm neither. I'm the lightning flash in the middle. Always And you just mentioned that, uh, you know, Bond was the, you know, what, uh, you know, front man, 
you know, since he was a singer, you know, Angus is uh, kind of the uh, face for the band, but it's actually Malcolm uh, was the really the leader of the band. Right. Yes, he was the boss. Even though he he didn't come off that way, he rarely did interviews. Usually Angus and Bon or Angus and Brian do interviews. There, Malcolm has done a, a few, but he didn't normally do interviews. And um, very soft-spoken, but, oh, if things don't go <laughs> the way they're supposed to. <laughs> I, I put a chapter, and uh, it's, you know, I thought it was funny. I put a chapter in the FAQ book um, called Who Packed the Biggest Punch in uh, ACDC. And every fight that I uh, found in the over 30 years of history that people where somebody was punched, um, the punch puncher was always Malcolm. So I gave him that credit for being uh, packing the biggest punch in the band. Because <laughs> he, he tangled with a few people over the years. But he was you'd never know that if you met him. He was so nice and so quiet and, you know, seemed shy almost. But um, he ran the band and wrote all the biggest riffs, you know, riffs to Thunderstruck, Back in Black. I mean, he was, and very well-deserved, called the Riff Master for a reason. <laughs> okay. Um Let's see, Barbara. Do you have any questions? You want to get 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 into? Uh, you, know, you know, we still have what thirty five minutes or so uh, uh-huh. uh, left. Yeah. Do, do you want to talk about your H- Hank Williams uh, uh, book? You know, you cover you know, uh, with th- three, four generations of. Uh, you know, uh, country music legends. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. You know, uh, yeah, I just wanted you know, ma- ma- you know, make sure we uh, yeah, t- touch on that so uh, you know we can uh, in- include the country music fans who who are are tuned in to us as well. Oh yeah, and, and uh, I grew up, you know, I grew up in venues, which meant jukeboxes. And I discovered Hank Williams on the jukebox and through my grandmother, who loved him. So I grew up on his music. I loved his music. And uh, a friend of mine, his name is Mickey, God bless him, um, gave me the idea to write a book about Hank Three. I didn't even know Hank Three existed, which is the grandson, Hank Jr.'s son. So he said he's never had a book written about him, and he would really, he's very interesting. You should get a hold of him. I got a hold of him, and he agreed to interview, which was amazing. And the book ended up, um, it's called Family Tradition, Three Generations of Hank Williams. And it covers, it starts out with Hank Sr., goes through Hank Jr., and ends with Hank III's life. And um, I got to do a book signing at the Hall of Fame in uh, Nashville, which was a huge honor. And um, just very proud. I'm that I think that's one of my best work is family tradition. Okay. Uh, what was the you know, the the family's secret of being such a country music 
legend. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like Hank Williams, Johnny Cash, you know, it's like, you know, you just have those, you know, few people that are, you know, always mentioned as being, uh, you know, the cornerstone inspiration for so many country artists. You know, what, what was so special about uh, Hank uh, Sr.? Oh, my gosh. Um, he started as a kid, okay? He started, uh, he learned how to play guitar, and he wrote and sang songs from a very young age. He was very prolific pr- prolific as a writer, and um, he grew up uh, playing in, you know, a band that his mother used to, you know, drive him around and book the gigs and take the money at the door, and then he got a radio show, um, when they were down in, I want to say, when they lived in Montgomery, um, Alabama, uh, I could be wrong about that because they lived in a couple different places. So don't uh, don't uh, you know be upset if I've got that wrong. But um, he started very young, and in his lifetime, he recorded 170 songs and died at the age of 29. And the thing that that upsets me is that yes he had a drinking problem he was a binge drinker he would drink for days and then and then not drink for a long time and then fall off the wagon and binge drink again but when he uh, recorded he never drank in the studio ever and how do you write 170 songs or record that that many songs and die at 29 you know a, a lot of uh, the, like the movie that they did recently called uh, I Saw the Light, it, it was upsetting to me because Hank, there was way more to Hank than just his drinking. He was a genius. He was an absolute genius at writing, at writing lyrics. Um, of, uh, you know, um, he he was what, what everybody else, you know, Johnny Cash and all the rest, Waylon, they all walk in Hank's footsteps because he was there first. And my favorite story about Hank, and he was nice to everybody. He was sweet to everybody. He gave money to people all the time. When he started making money and he would see somebody down and out, he'd hand him a wad of cash. He did it all the time. And um, he was just a great person, and he was funny, and he, he was very comical. He gave everybody nicknames. And um, he used to make jokes all the time, and and uh, I, you know, I'd love to see a project done that that shows what he was really like, and he wasn't just o- only a drinker that fought with his wife and then ended up dead. There was so much more to him. And you no, know, how did? His influence, you know, you know we know uh, what uh, Hank Jr. You know, you know, you know, really hit the big time with the you know, Monday Night Football theme song. But you know, what, you know, how did his dad's influence uh, propel Hank Jr. to you know, such a uh, celebrity status? Well, you know, you, I have to give Audrey Williams the credit for that, even though she started him out. When when Hank Sr. died, Hank Jr. was only three years old. Mm-hmm. So and as he got young. older, Audrey, his mother, 
pushed him into singing his father's songs. And so he went on tour singing his father's songs. And he got, I think, up to the age of 18 when he fired his mother and decided to record, you know, he wanted to do Southern Rock, and he's definitely, you know, one of the founders of Southern, the Sound of Southern Rock, and he wanted to do his own thing. He wanted to do more rock and roll. So um, the funny thing about the, the three generations is that Hank Sr.'s father was hospitalized most of his life, so he grew up without a dad. Hank Jr.'s father, Hank Sr., died when he was three, so he grew up without a dad. And then Hank III, Hank Jr.'s son, the grandson, his parents divorced when he was three, and he grew up without a father also. So none of them grew up with their fathers in their lives, which is sad, but Mm -hmm. an amazing um, repetitive cycle. That the um, which is broken now, because um, Hank three has a son, and he's close to his son. As the last I, I've heard, anyway, and we talked about that about breaking the cycle of um, his family of uh, mm-hmm. father never being there, because they all three had that. They all three grew up without their dads. So very sad. I mean, incredible talent. An incredible family, but a lot of tragedy and a lot of sadness. Just an amazing, I mean, Hank Williams. And, you know, I was going to say, too, one of my favorite stories about Hank, you know, when you think all these, you know, badass like Waylon Jennings and Johnny Cash and all that, Hank was way ahead of those guys. (laughs) He showed up one night. And he was drinking. He was not doing well. This was after his divorce from Audrey, and he really was kind of lost. And he came to this gig, and he was—he—he he didn't want to play. And uh, he got up on stage, and he walked up on the stage with his guitar, and he grabbed the microphone, and he says, "Hey, hey, hey, y'all! Bet y'all drove a long way here to come and see old Hank, didn't you?" And the crowd just roared. He set his guitar down on the floor and said, "Well." You seen him? He turned around and walked off the back of the stage and got the car and left. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, that's where it started. That's where the badass started, right there. And I just got such a kick out of that because that that was rare for him to do something like that. He was drinking at the time and not be, you know, he wasn't very healthy. He should never have been on the the trip that when he died on the trip trying to go to the um, two gigs to play. New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, he really should have been in a hospital. So, it, it is what is like the the exhaustion of the tour and, and combined with the alcohol is that uh, you know what caused his death. Well, what happened with him, uh, which is you know again, he, he had a hard life and. He was born with spina bifida, which left a hole in his um, spine, which mm-hmm. gave him a lot of trouble with uh, back pain. Um, mm-hmm. The first song that he wrote when he was in middle school is called Backache Blues. <laughs> and as he got older and he toured, and, and remember, they toured in these old cars, right? They didn't have luxurious buses and, and all these things. So he's bumping, you know, getting bounced around in a car every night, and uh, he also fell later on. He fell off a horse, I think, out. They were hunting or something, 
and he fell off the horse, and it hurt his back even worse. And the real downfall was, I believe, at the end of 51, he had back surgery, which did not help him at all. It made it worse, and he ended up um, with a doctor who wasn't a real doctor, which, um, you know, exactly kind of what Michael Jackson did. Uh, this guy right. gave him chloral hydrate when, when he was in pain, and chloral hydrate is, uh, they call it the Mickey Finn drug back in the day because that was the original roofie. You could knock somebody out with it. It was a very powerful sedative. And you definitely don't mix it with alcohol. And he was so desperate. He had been fired from the Opry because he had, you know, started missing gigs. And they fired him, which, you know, sent him further down the spiral of, you know, being depressed. And he insisted on trying to do these two shows, even though he should have really been in the hospital, taking care of his back and him being on chloral hydrate. So they're shooting him up with morphine and giving him chloral hydrate. And on the ride that he died in the back seat that night, he died of a massive heart attack. And it wasn't from drinking, but, you know, of course, the mixing the drinking and the chloral hydrate and everything is it. Uh, they think he might have had a heart attack a week or two before that, too, where he, he completely collapsed. And uh, they got him back up again. But, um, you know, in those days, everybody's like, yeah, I'm sure he's fine. He's okay. And then a few weeks later, he was gone. Yeah, a second one. Okay. Yeah, and, and that was just all all by the age of 29. Right, yeah. I thought he was in his 40s when he died by how he looked. You know, I didn't know until I started uh, researching him that he was only 29. It's a very old soul, for sure. So prophetic. I mean, oh, my goodness. He knew that he wasn't going to live. He even, when he said goodbye to his cousin that uh, he took off for the gigs, he said, this is probably going to be my last Christmas. And uh, he was very he was very psychic in his own way, hmm. and um, it's you know one of the greatest songwriters uh, in my opinion in American history music history is Hank Williams, and he was fifty years later awarded a posthumous Pulitzer Prize for his lyrics. They awarded it to him in two thousand ten. Hmm. So. Uh, 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 what is the title of uh, you know your uh, you know Hank Williams family uh, book? Yeah, it's uh, Family Tradition: Three Generations of Hank Williams, oh, and okay. you can uh, find that on Amazon. Okay, and you know that, um, I, I I think it is in- interesting to study uh, patterns of uh, creativity and you know, that does co- come up every once in a while on a show and it's just um, I don't I don't know a whole lot about country music but uh, you, know, you are uh, presenting a interesting portrait of um, you know, a very influential uh, American music family Oh yeah, one of the greatest. Mhm. Yeah, I, definitely. I, I, uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, you know, you also uh, mentioned their 
you know, the uh, Williams family's influence on uh, Southern rock and, you know, uh, is a nice segue into um, your recent tour of the big house. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I uh, have to talk about the, that museum that uh, maybe at some point I can make it down to uh or, or is it in in Macon to Yeah, Macon, uh, to, Georgia, to, the big house, the Almond Brothers Big House and Museum. You've gotta go. It is so cool. If you if you were a fan, anybody out there that loved the Almond Brothers, it is so worth the trip. Macon is an amazing city. I had no idea and I should have known this, I felt kind of embarrassed actually, to think that not only the Allman Brothers came from there, well, they moved there from Jacksonville in 69, but they were based out of Macon. So was Otis Redding, so was Little Richard, um, so many different people that did songs, you know, with uh, Dwayne Allman before he passed, and, you know, Leonard Skinner got their start out of Macon, and I had no idea that there's such a history, but, of course, you know, the Allman Brothers put Macon, Georgia on the map, and... Um, when you go to the big house, it was a house they lived in for three years. And, uh, the, it's just amazing. They have, um, Barry Oakley and Dwayne Allman's bedrooms recreated from when they lived there. Uh, and they both, uh, for people that don't know, um, Dwayne Allman passed a year after the band really hit it big in 1970. He, he was, uh, killed in a motorcycle accident after visiting the bass player, and then a year almost to the day, the bass player died on the same stretch of road in a motorcycle accident. So they're buried together in Macon. And uh, when you go to the house, you it's only 15 bucks to get in, and you can spend all day there. And they have everything, all their equipment, their clothes, I mean, just everything. And the greatest story that I came out of there with was the guy that worked in the gift shop he gave us a tour of the cemetery, which is like a mile and a half wide. So I'm really happy that he knew where to go. And they used to hang out at night, the Allman Brothers, and write songs in that cemetery, okay? So a lot of their songs are actually written about real people. Like Little Martha is about a little girl that, you know, is in that cemetery. And uh, Elizabeth Reed, that's another woman that that was real, yep, that they wrote about. And uh, so um, I found out from the gift shop guy that they have a cleaning crew that comes in, you know, like once a week to clean. And the the father of the family that does this was up in the jam room. They have like a, you know, where they used to sit on the floor, you know, cushions on the floor with a round coffee table and stereo system and, you know, just very, just so 60s and 70s. And so he was up there cleaning one night, and this was after Greg Allman passed. And uh, somebody tapped him on his, sh- on his shoulder. He turned around, and Greg Allman was standing there looking at him. So mm-hmm. my goal is to investigate and be able to stay overnight in that house because <laughs> I bet you you can hear music at night. I-, I can swear to God that I bet you they're jamming because, you know, a lot of them are on the other side now, and why not be in the big house? That's where they were happiest. 
So it was uh, it was really fun. I want to go back because Greg Allman had just passed, and they didn't have his monument um, done yet. So I, I want to go back when they have that done, and um, and see the big house again. I just loved it, you know. I mean, Cher, you know, when Cher is married to Greg, they have the Cher and Greg uh, pool table. They have pictures of her with him in in the in the room, and they have everything. They have lots of letters that Dwayne Allman wrote from home when they were on tour, and you know, and uh, Dwayne Allman uh, for guitar players, he he was uh, one of the most incredible guitar players ever, and died right when the Allman Brothers became famous, right before they did. So he's been gone for a long time, but yet is cited as many guitar players, uh, you know, idols. That uh, they right. look, they look up to Dwayne's plane. Yeah, and um, you know, the, obviously Eric Clapton is one of them, and you know, every, it's like every once in a while you still have Eric playing with, uh, you know, the Allman Brothers. Mm-hmm. Or not, uh, not recently, but you know they, uh, you know they, they have done some, uh, like maybe some of the beacon, their their beacon shows. Oh yeah. But the, yep. uh, but you know the, you know the Derek and the Dominoes, uh, you know short lived band act, you know, had a a lot of roots al- almost fifty years later. So. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it, it, you know, is, is there you know stuff about the you know Layla album at the Big House? Um, there might have been, but I didn't really see that. Okay. Um, they they have so much stuff though, you know. Um, I tried to look at everything, <laughs> but uh, it, there there's so much there. It's just it's amazing. I, 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 do, do do they? Uh, you know, have, have uh, you know, some of the displays, uh, you know, with uh, uh, you know, Dickie Betts was was he living at that house as well? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. They have um, uh, they have a sign where he sat in the window and wrote "Ramblin' Man." So they have like stuff like that all over the house. You know, like this is where, you know, Greg wrote this, and so yeah, Dickie Betts wrote "Ramblin' Man," I think, in the front room there, and uh, they have a little sign. So, just amazing, such such great music. I oh my God, when I discovered the Allman Brothers in high school, I went completely buku crazy for Southern rock. <laughs> so it was. Uh, I've been wanting to go to Macon forever. And I'm glad I finally got to go, and I can't wait to go back and do more research. There's so much well, there. Well, I hope they do let you stay stay at the house. Uh, you know, just co- come back and uh, update us on uh, what what you hear. Oh yeah, if, if yeah. They and, allow. You know what what was really cool um, and. Again, a great synchronicity is that uh, Rex, the, the gift shop person, took us to Greg's grave, which, I, uh, like I said, it would have been hard to find on our own because the, I had no idea the cemetery was so big. And uh, Chank Middleton was there 
I met him, and he was uh, Greg Allman's best friend from the year they met in 1969 up until he passed. So I got to meet his very best friend, and uh, we were talking about how, you know, um, Barry and Dwayne's, um, they're, where they're buried is all white marble or white granite, and uh, they're going to do black granite for Greg and um, do kind of a different thing next to them and put a gate around it and everything. And Chank was saying that, you know, they've decided that it, it should say Midnight Rider on it. And I said, well, yeah, and there better be a silver dollar. And his eyes just lit up and he went, oh, my God, I got to call his wife, you know, because uh, Shannon, his um, widow, sorry. Um, but he got so excited. He goes, oh, God, I've got to call Shannon. She's going to love that. So I'm hoping to go back and see it, and there will be a silver dollar in the black granite, because there there should be. I just think that would be right. Right. <laughs> right. So, um, it, it is and what uh, Greg and Dickie's uh, boys are uh, working together. Um, and they have their own band, and they're uh, on the road as well. So mm-hmm. that, that, that's uh, that's nice to see. Oh um, yeah, yeah. You know, the you know just like you know the you know uh, Hank Jr. and uh, his son uh, carrying on the legacies. Uh, you know, you know we have. Um, you know the almonds, uh, or you know, p- people from the almonds, uh, you know, still working together. Uh, you know, Fifty years since the band forms, so you get the next, you know, next generation uh, c- carrying on. Um, you know, from, from their dads. So it's it just it's nice to see that. Oh yeah, I, I always love to see that. It's um you know, it's great. I mean, they leave behind this incredible music, but mm-hmm. you know, then they, so many of them have uh, like George Harrison's son and, you know, Sean and Julian Lennon and, you know, the the, the next generation are some amazing musicians in their, you know, in their own right. And uh it's always great to see, you know, the legacy live on. Yeah, and uh and you know, I guess uh, you know we could, you know you just mentioned uh, you know Sean Lennon. Uh, you know uh, Sean is mentioned in uh, your uh, the, the secrets of the universe. We might as well uh, you know, remind people of that. You know, uh, what do we say like a uh, synchronicity type e- event. Or precognition, uh, you know, whatever category it falls under, but uh, you know, you, you had uh, a, a meeting with Yoko and Sean. Yeah, <laughs> and very unexpected too, because um, the well, we we always wanted to meet Yoko when we lived in New York. You know, we'd go up to the Dakota and walk around and think, wow, wouldn't it be cool to you know run into her at some point and. 
one night in February where it was warm out. It was toward the end of February, and uh, we went up to eat at a restaurant on the Upper West Side right down the street from the Dakota. That was our favorite place to eat, spaghetti. And um, I got out on the street, and as soon as I stepped down on the corner, we were supposed to go to the right, and I took a left and crossed the street. And my husband was following me, and he's like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm not hungry yet. I just feel like i got to walk a little bit. He's like, God, I'm starving, really? And I said, just, you know, just walk a little bit. So I walked about a half a block, and right in the middle of the street, which you know, I don't re- re- recommend people doing this in New York, but I crossed the street in the middle of the street. And, again, my husband's following me going, what are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm done. Let's go. I'm ready. Let's go eat. So I crossed the street. We're going back down toward the restaurant, and uh, I go past. It was the 80s, okay, 1984, I want to say. And everything was, you know, punk and brought neon colors and safety pins and, you know, that sort of look. And there was mm-hmm. this uh, row of dolls in the window, and they were done up like little punks, and they had, you know, streaked hair, and they had safety pins. And, and I stopped, and I, I started to laugh at the dolls. I said, oh, my God, look at these dolls. Aren't they cute? And, of course, my husband was ready to kill me by that point because he wanted to go eat. And uh, I looked up at the couple in front of me, and it was a taller gentleman and a a very petite lady with dark hair, wrap-around sunglasses, and uh, she had her hair in a ponytail. And I looked at him, and I recognized him from a previous time that we were at the Dakota. He was um, a boyfriend of Yoko's. And I recognized him, and then I looked at her and realized, oh, my God, Yoko Ono is standing right in front of me. So I, I backed away from her, and I went to the other side of my husband to the left of him. I grabbed his arm and tried to whisper to him who we were standing next to. And before I got a chance to say anything, she had a cane that she was using, so I don't know if she had twisted her ankle or something, but... Right when I was going to tell him who she was, she turned around to walk away, stepped down and stumbled, and my husband instinctively jumped and caught her and set her back up. And when she he, he looked at her and she looked at him, she giggled and said, well, oh, I'm sorry. She goes, thank you. And I could see I was watching him because he didn't know who she was at first, and I, I did. And the look on his face was just priceless <laughs> so she stood there and i didn't want to say anything to her because i didn't want everybody else to notice she was out without bodyguards so we just mm-hmm. kind of you know watched her walk away and then later on we moved away from new york and i i insisted on i'm taking a letter that to the dakota to tell her who we were to thank her for you know um uh, stopping and giving us an opportunity to speak. And, and so I just wrote her a letter, and, and I took it to the Dakota. And as we're walking down to the Dakota, there's a little kid out in the street with two two big guys, one on either side, and they're trying to hail a cab. And I looked over at the kid, and the kid turns around and looks right at me and smiles at me like he knows me. And I look over at my husband, and I said, that that's Sean Lennon. And he looked over, and sure enough, it was Sean Lennon with two bodyguards. And he just smiled at me like he just knew me. And I smiled back, and then I went in and I handed the guard the letter. And that Christmas, we moved back in June, 
and that Christmas she sent us a card from Yoko. Wow. So, amazing. <laughs> I can imagine she hasn't stumbled and been caught by many people. So, I'm sure she remembered it. But we were so stunned. I, I, I was speechless. I didn't know what to say to her. I was just, it yeah. was too surreal. <laughs> yeah, um, I, yeah, that's an interesting story. And, you know, she has uh, her, her role in... Uh, pop culture, and you know, she's also you know, doing her performing arts during, uh, you know, the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus uh, uh, performance. You know, doing mm-hmm. the um, you know bag. Th- oh yeah. Things. <laughs> uh, so you know, it's, uh, you know, she she she, she, she she's. Uh, an innovative uh, concept mm-hmm. artist. So, um, yeah, so you know, your stories are have been very intriguing, and you know, we, we have you know several minutes left. But um, you know, I, um, um, I mean, do 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 a uh, you know quick uh, Robin Zander uh, story, and then you can plug all your books and. Uh, you know, I just think the audience got a n- nice uh, look at all this history that y- you've been a part of. Yeah, I I was in the right place at the right time <laughs> when I started writing. And uh, I was there, you know, my first book, Rock and Roll Fantasy, includes stories about everybody. Um, ACDC, Van Halen, Kiss, Cheap Trick, Ted Nugent, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer, um, I used to work for Cheap Trick back in the day. I uh, ran their fan club because their manager at the time, Ken Animani, lived in Madison. So I used to run their fan club before computers, which was horrifying, but we won't get into that. Um, <laughs> but uh, you can go to um, Amazon to find all my books. My website is uh, susanmacino.com. You can find me on Facebook and Twitter. Not so much on Instagram yet. Um, I just don't have time to take on another platform. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, um, Robin Zander's story, uh, I don't, you know, there's a bunch of those, so I don't know exactly which one you want to hear about. <laughs> well, he, uh, he, he's, uh, uh, what's he like in person? Just uh, another, oh. like uh, Brian Johnson, just a h- humble guy? Yeah, he's Robin is very sweet, um, very, you know, like, my God, we go back, you know, I, I met Cheap Trick before I met ACDC, so we go back even farther. And, um, you know, he's a, an incredible singer. I mean, I think Robin Zander's got one of the best voices in rock, period. You know, he can scream, he can do ballads, so I love Robin, and uh, he's always fun to, to see and to talk to and and um he lives down in uh, Clearwater and does um things with Brian Johnson and, and uh Cliff Williams. So cuz ACDC uh actually Cheap Trick is the only band that ACDC ever let come out and play encores with them. So they were very close as bands. They loved each other. Oh wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, they were uh, Bon Scott and Tom Peterson. <laughs> oh dear, <laughs> those two. 
they were definitely uh, having a good time. And um, Kirk Dyer, who is now passed, God bless him, he was their tour manager for 14 years and told the funniest story of when they were um, play, uh, played with, um, oh, God, I think it was Monsters of Rock with Scorpions and everybody. And the next day they were all on the plane ready to go and no bond, you know, and the uh, plane is starting to roll off to the tarmac and here's Bond running across the tarmac with a bottle of Jack in one hand and no shoes. And uh, he got on the plane, he had the bottle of Jack, but he forgot his shoes. So they had, they had a lot of fun together. <laughs> okay, and uh, uh, Cheap Trick is still uh, touring? Oh, yeah. Is that right? Yep. Okay. They're still out there. So is Journey, you know, so is ACDC, Van Halen, uh, a little bit. I think Kiss is doing uh, a farewell tour, um, which, you know, we all take that with a grain of salt because it seems like everybody does a farewell tour and then there's a tour after that. So let's hope they just keep I, – I, I want everybody to just keep rocking until they drop. That's That's okay. my thing. I mean, if Keith Richards can do it, anybody can do it. Right. And he just turned 75 the other day. Yeah, and you know, get uh, Jimmy Page turning 75 today too. So, um, and a uh, lot, lot of uh, birth birthdays, uh, you know, over the last uh, couple weeks. But uh, yeah, you know, we're down to about two minutes, and um. Uh, you know, so you, you, people can find you on Amazon, Susan Asino, M-A-S-I-N-O. Um, yeah, so has this, uh, uh, you know, rock life uh, caused you to ha- have to see a psychiatrist? Um, say that again. I'm it, sorry. It, 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 has has uh, this uh, life caused you to have to see a psychiatrist? Um, at times, yes. Yeah, like on family vacations. Yeah, definitely, yes. No, my my yeah, daughter yeah. is a psychologist, and she she's always analyzing me. So. Uh, and okay, she's so. right about everything, so that that's very hard to take. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, yeah she'll, 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 she'll get the archive. <laughs> yeah, she's she's amazing. She blows my mind all the time, and you know. But yeah, she loves to analyze me. I, I got, I'm probably a pretty good subject because I'm all over the map. So. <laughs> hey, Mark, it's, it's time to say good night. Okay. Hey, uh, th- th- thanks, Susan. Uh, this is uh, just a, a terrific uh, discussion, and thanks uh, Barbara for producing this. And uh, we will see everyone, um, I think next tu- Tuesday with um, Mike Bethine and Mason Winfield, and we're going to talk about the their book, uh, Iroquois Supernatural. So we'll see you next Absolutely. week. Absolutely. Good night, yeah. everybody. Well, Thank you. Good Good night, night. Barbara. Good night, Mark. Good night, Susan. Thank you. Thanks again.